I'm Myrna McCollum, Métis Cree lawyer and passionate promoter of trauma-informed lawyering. Welcome to my new podcast, The Trauma-Informed Lawyer, brought to you in partnership with the Canadian Bar Association. I believe that law schools and bar courses are missing a critical competency requirement in their curriculum, trauma-informed lawyering. Becoming a trauma-informed lawyer will, among other things, challenge you to critically reflect on your personal behaviors, beliefs, and biases, call on you to positively transform the way you approach advocacy, guide your practice to avoid doing further harm to others, and ask that you commit to remaining open to learn new and old knowledge you didn't know you needed before beginning your career. Your education starts right here, right now. This podcast comes to you from the traditional, unceded territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam people. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Trauma-Informed Lawyer Podcast. It's 2021. Happy New Year. I mean, should I say Happy New Year? Was it happy? Did you just get through by the skin of your teeth like I did? I need to see the world, this wacky, wacky world we're in, turn a corner to better and brighter days. Thank you all so much for listening to this podcast and for sharing it and promoting it and for the law societies on the other side of the world, acknowledging it and recognizing it and giving their lawyers CPD credits for listening to it and for law schools, even outside of Canada requiring their students to listen to this podcast as part of their overall learning. It blows my mind. I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you so much. And I hope you continue to listen. I promise I'm going to have awesome content for you in 2021 as I go into season two later on in the spring. Content that will inspire you, conversations that will resonate with you, and hopefully validate some of your experiences. Today's episode is a really cool one. I mean, they're all really cool, right? But like this one is really close to my heart. Why? Because I am co-authoring a book. Can you believe it? Trauma-Informed Law, a Primer for Lawyers in Practice. That's the working title. The book is being published by the American Bar Association Law Practice Division. Some time ago, my friend Helgi Mackey invited me into a conversation with Kim Wright and Brooke Goldfarb about this project and asked me if I wanted to lend my voice to this project. And absolutely, I said yes. Since then, group has sort of tightened up and it's Kim and Helgi and myself and Marjorie Floristall. I just looked Marjorie up. I had no idea. She is a former Clinton White House lawyer. She's never dropped that flex on me yet. And we've talked several times. So wow, Marjorie. Anyway, I'm not going to do a big intro because as we start this conversation, they're all going to introduce themselves. And then we're going to talk about this book and what it is we hope that this book will deliver. And then there will be an invitation and a bit of a call out about hearing from all of you to reflect some of your experiences and your feedback and your ideas in this book, because part of this book is collecting stories. Uh, Further to that, we're asking folks to fill out a survey. So if you're interested in maybe seeing your story in this publication, that's going to be coming out probably in the summertime, go to traumainformedlaw.org. And as you look at the headers at the top of the page, you're going to see surveys. Click on surveys and immediately it's going to take you to the fillable form. 
And also for those of you who've been sharing this podcast and promoting it and chatting about it, please go to Apple Podcast, rate it, drop a line, give it a review. Let me know what you think. I read those reviews. Lots of people read those reviews. I want to know. All right. So let's get started. Welcome everyone to the Trauma Informed Lawyer Podcast. I just feel like we're all so blessed. We get to hear from Kim and Helgi and Marjorie, and specifically, we're going to talk today about a project that we're all working on together. Kim and Marjorie are new to this podcast and to our listeners, so let's do a little bit of a round before we get into talking about this book. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Kim. So my claim to fame here is that I have already written two books published by the American Bar Association. One is called Lawyers as Peacemakers, Practicing Holistic Problem-Solving Law. And the other is Lawyers as Changemakers, which is about the global integrative law movement. And so I come uh, I come with uh, the experience of having uh, actually published two books and contributing to a bunch of others. But then I'm also a person who uh, has uh, experienced some trauma. And, um, and I've worked with uh, people who've experienced trauma. So my past includes working in a small town uh, law practice where I did a lot of family law. And uh, there was a lot of trauma in that. I um, was once the director of a domestic violence program. And uh, so there's a lot of trauma there. I've been a crime victim, a restorative justice uh, facilitator, working on murder cases, just a, a lot of um, a lot of different opportunities, and then I also uh, raised a blended multiracial family, and so sort of the systemic piece of of our process is of, of concern to me as well. What specifically inspired you to explore trauma informed practice as a lawyer? Well, I think I've always been interested in trauma informed practice because I'm I'm a human being who has experienced trauma, and I'm. I have been practicing holistically since the 90s. Um, but this particular project came to me because Brooke Goldfarb, who um, is a lawyer and a, uh, in social work school, uh, contacted me and she said, who wrote the book about trauma-informed lawyering and where can I find it? And so we had a conversation and we went looking for it and we couldn't find one. And we thought that was a really big a big issue and we should um, get in touch with somebody at the ABA and uh, that's sort of how this ball got rolling. Awesome. Well, I'm really glad that you and Brooke asked that question uh, to allow for us to now get together to fill this gap. Let's move on to Marjorie. Thanks for having me. First of all, uh, I've been binge listening to your podcast and it's been a pure joy. And it's hard to say that about something like trauma, but if it's possible, you make it, <laughs> you make it possible to enjoy the discussion. So for me, I'd say um, I'm one of those people uh, who knew that I was going to be a lawyer when I was nine years old. Uh, and I said to my father that I wanted to be the international Thurgood Marshall. I went to law school to become a human rights lawyer. And I was in law school in the 90s, and there was a coup in Haiti. I happen to be Haitian-American. And I thought, this is it. This is my opportunity. Um, and I volunteered to go down to Florida to um, interview um, people seeking asylum who are literally um, had experienced all kinds of trauma and violence at home, uh, had uh, taken to 
boats that were little more than um, tin cans with holes um, that had survived all sorts of traumatic events to be in this gymnasium uh, at a high school in Florida. And uh, I did that. Uh, I interviewed them every day for two weeks. Um, and when I got out of that, I thought, I, there's no way I can be a human rights lawyer. I felt overwhelmed. I was crying all the time. I felt powerless. I just felt the sense that I don't have whatever it is that it takes to be able to hear these stories day in and day out and survive. And yet, what else was I going to do at this point, right? So I went on to become a lawyer. And luckily, I found international trade law, which gave me the sense that I could help people create economic prosperity at a sort of global level that might impact individuals in their everyday lives. And so I practice at the office of the U.S. Trade Representative shortly after NAFTA and the World Trade Organization were launched. Um, I really had the opportunity to um, participate in the agreements that helped shape our um, global trading system in the 90s. And I also saw the sort of um, realities of how distant it is to create trade um, avenues for some countries versus helping um, people one-on-one -on -one in their everyday lives. And so I ended up moving to the African continent. And what I was doing was um, teaching and training people on um, the World Trade Organization and, and how developing countries could take advantage of um, some of those benefits. So it was the same idea consistently throughout my life. How do we bring dignity to people so that they are not in circumstances where the only possibility is to flee and to put themselves in bodily harm's way? I ultimately ended up a law professor. Uh, and these days I train students in negotiations in international trade and contracts issues. And then at some point along the way, I became really impassioned about psychology. And so I left my um, full-time teaching post uh, to now teach part-time. And uh, I pursued a master's in Jungian psychology because I wanted to understand the sort of um, the archetypal constructs that make up our world. Um, and these days I am completing a PhD exploring trauma and depression among law students and how we can um, transition to a profession that doesn't eat our young in the way that we do. Thanks for that intro, Marjorie. And I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing, particularly around uh, how this profession can eat our young, because through this podcast and other interactions I've had, I'm definitely seeing a theme that is emerging repeatedly, which is young lawyers talking to me about their negative experiences with this profession and seeking some feedback and advice from me about their next career move. And oftentimes they're contemplating leaving this profession because they don't see a place for themselves. So I'm really glad you're doing that work. And I just want to invite Helgi to share a little bit about herself for people who maybe have um, missed our interview when she and I spoke about building a sustainable law practice. Helgi Mackey is not only a really good friend of mine, but she is in 
incredibly insightful, and I would say also um, a powerful thought leader on trauma-informed loss. So Helgi, tell all of us a little bit about yourself and when it was that you began to explore trauma-informed approaches as a necessary approach to the practice of law. It really felt like I had no other choice but to explore this topic area, Um, but it didn't start out that way in my legal career. So until a few years ago, I was working at a a big law firm and, you know, on the surface, there seemed to be success. But to me, that uh, success felt empty because I wasn't bringing to it the personal side, which is my own personal experience uh, and family experience with trauma, including domestic violence, sexual assault, and many other uh, things that, you know, someone in my family was a victim of crime also. And so in 2006, I could no longer ignore these two parts of my life because the police came to my office. I was an associate at one of these uh, large law firms and a police officer came there to tell me that my, my mother had died by suicide. And it was... Sadly, not a surprise. You know, she had been experiencing uh, trauma and and mental health issues and also access to justice issues in terms of whether or or not to report certain things or how. And she wasn't alone in my family. There were other people who were in a similar position. And so when that happened, I knew I needed to do something to honor her experience and also my own it doesn't make sense to have a harm continue in society or suffering without speaking about it. We can't expect to support anything or heal anything if we are silent about it. So when I was thinking about your podcast, Myrna, I wanted to tell you this story. So when I was in high school, I was, and I'm one of those annoying people who had decided in like grade one, I was going to be a lawyer. Right. But it was because there was something bad that happened. And I thought in my little grade one mind, I thought, I'm going to help. I'm going to find that person and bring them to justice or whatever. And so when I was exploring the legal profession, when I was in high school, one of the first cases I was sent to observe in a court in the lower mainland in Vancouver was a court of a, a, a case about a grandmother who was accused of drug possession and trafficking. And so I was flabbergasted sitting there as a grade nine student in the courtroom witnessing this story. And to me, there seemed to be so much more to the story than the charges and what the judge was clearly taking in. You know, the grandmother talked about how there was poverty, there was someone threatening her, there was domestic violence. And so it the charges were really the tip of the iceberg. So that is what also you see this over and over again in our society where what we think of as the legal issue is paired with so many more complex issues. Thanks for sharing that, Helgi. I mean, I have so many stories similar to that one. And uh, I love how uh, you and Marjorie are talking about like being these annoying young girls who knew early on, I'm going to be a lawyer. Um, I had the same realization when I was, I think, 15. I was watching a CBC show called Man Alive back that was on back in the day. And I saw a young Indigenous man on the show, and he was being interviewed about justice. The the issue was, or the topic of the day was justice. And I had never seen an Indigenous person on television. 
in any meaningful way, and especially not talking about justice. And he said, this is how I understand justice. And it's based on my experience. He says, I had uh, done a crime when I was a little bit younger. He was already pretty young. He said, I remember it was a white man that arrested me. It was a white man who sentenced me to jail. And it was a white man who locked the door. And it was only when I was on the inside that I saw my own people. And that just stuck with me as an impressionable 15-year-old. And somewhere in my little brain, I was like, I'm going to become a lawyer. And meanwhile, I'm like, I don't know any lawyers. I didn't even know Native people could be lawyers because we were so uh, steeped in poverty and pain and trauma, et cetera, right? And so, um, but yeah, like whoever that man is, if he ever listens to this podcast, if he still exists in the world, he changed my life uh, just hearing that story. So I'm so glad that we have all gathered and that the universe did what it does to bring us together to work on this book on trauma-informed law, which is a gap in the profession and a gap in the curriculum and a gap in what lawyers recognize as a critical competency. So maybe let's chat a little bit about why you think that this profession is desperately in need of an education and a resource on trauma-informed law. Maybe Kim, let's start with you. That's such a big question. And I'm, I'm going to uh, jump around a little bit because the first thing is I think it's like the elephant in the room that we haven't been talking about. We, we go to law school and one of the first things we learn is that our emotions don't matter, that our humanity doesn't matter, like you know, like that it's all just the facts. And uh, and uh, I, I often speak in law schools and some of the um, some of the classes I'll ask the teacher before I go in the professor and say what what case are you doing now and you know. The, we all do the same cases, no matter where in the world we are. There, you know, those key cases in common law, at least. And um, and so then I'll say, well, and what did Mrs. Paul's graph feel about that? And there's this like nervous twitter that goes through the room. It's like, what did she feel about? It? Like we're not allowed to talk about that. And there's this pride and um, not sleeping. You know, and like, you know, um, like giving up our self-care early. And, you know, like uh, I'll, you know, ask people, uh, how many of you got eight hours of sleep last night? And nobody raises their hand, uh, or at least very rarely somebody will raise their hand. And, I'll, and, and it's like, like they're looking around like, am I going to win this competition because I only got three hours of sleep? And so we're, we're learning that who we are as people will not matter as a lawyer. We're not supposed to take care of ourselves. We're not supposed to have emotions. We're just like these automatons. So we learn that in law school. And then we get out into the world and you can't show any vulnerability because if you are vulnerable if, and, and take vulnerability and replace humanity, like if, if you are bringing your, your whole vulnerable self and you're feeling things and you're, you're connecting with clients and, you know, if you look in the law, there's a hierarchy of, um, of, um, prestige like if you're doing like criminal and and family law you're actually dealing with people you're you're down the ladder but if mergers and acquisitions you know like that's that's the that's the real law we all know no matter what city it is you know like uh there you know in the u.s it's wall street like you know to be a wall street lawyer doing m a that's when you've actually arrived 
and everything else is is less than. So we've we've got this whole culture designed around that not feeling and not being human. And then we have, you know, uh, high rates of depression, high rates of addiction, high rates of suicide, and we're and 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 there are, uh, are a lot of studies that are showing that this is consistent. It's around the world. Um, it's um, you know, it's part of the profession. But uh, I haven't seen a lot of conversation about like how trauma impacts that. So one of the things I'm really interested in is like as we shut ourselves down, we become less less human, and then we start you know uh, sort of sucking it up like we're supposed to do. We're supposed to suck it up and keep our edge and all that kind of stuff. Like 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 there's something eating us inside, like our own trauma, the vicarious trauma, the, you know, the fatigue of dealing with trauma day after day. And it, and even if you are that MA lawyer, you're dealing with conflict and you're, and you're setting yourself apart. And, uh, and so the, you know, the, it's, um, it's everywhere in the profession and we're not, um, and we're not addressing it. I think that's a really good start. Like you identified a lot in that bit. And I, I think we're going to get into it in a bit. But I love that you mentioned vulnerability and humanity and keep our edge, suck it up, because I do hear a lot of that kind of feedback, particularly from young lawyers. And when I spoke to it a few minutes ago, that is largely what they're citing is that communication expectation of them that's causing them to go, wait a second, maybe there is no space for me in this profession. I love that you raised that. And maybe before we comment further on that, I want to go to Marjorie and ask her that same question about why she thinks this profession is in desperate need of a book and a resource on trauma-informed law. I really resonated with everything that Kim said and um, just how much it impacted my own decision-making as a lawyer. So as I said, when I had that experience working directly with um, refugees and asylum seekers and people who looked like me, who shared my um, ancestry, I thought to myself, I am not strong enough to be that lawyer, right? Because what I had been trained um, in law school was to be impartial and objective. And I was running into the bathroom and sobbing after Um, each interview. So clearly, I did not have what it took to be that kind of a lawyer, I said to myself. And so instead, what I chose was an area of the law that was more distant. I would represent institutions and um, countries, uh, not individuals, and really hope that by doing my part at that upper level and not meeting anybody's story face to face, that I might have an impact on the way that their stories played out on the ground. And what I got in Senegal and Cape Verde and everywhere was that people well understood these rules. What they didn't have was trust for the system. And it started to occur to me that the emotions are embedded in countries just as much as they are in individuals. I recognize that in the same way that I as an individual can feel emotions like suspicion and anger and fear and all of the things that rise up, so too can our nations embody this and our institutions can embody it. And I actually stumbled on this work by finding a movement in the law called Law and the Emotions. 
that does explore and that does recognize the way in which our laws um, are impacted by human emotion. And so in answer to your question, Myrna, um, I think what's really powerful about the work that we're doing is that we are articulating for the people in our profession a, you can't run away from the emotions. You can find M&A, but trust me, when you go into the negotiating room, emotions will be there and you'll have to figure out how to deal with them. Um, if you go into uh, my field, uh, international trade law, same thing. We can't get away from being human beings, right? And we can't get away from our um, uh, psychological stance, Um and so the question becomes, how do we deal with these emotions in ways that won't um, add additional harm? So my hope in this, um, having this book, and particularly the sections I focus on, is to explore for my students um, the ways in which we could recognize um, the emotions and trauma and the experience of being a lawyer in systems that espouse notions of equity and fairness, but don't always um, uh, encourage and enforce it. So if we recognize early on that, that this is the construct in which we live, how do we work through the system in ways that uh, can bring benefit to ourselves and to others? Thank you for that, Marjorie. So Helge, I also want to hear from you. What is your thoughts and ideas on why this profession needs a book on trauma-informed law. And maybe before you answer the question, I also want to acknowledge and recognize uh, your share earlier about your mom and the way in which you were informed of her suicide. And I think for a lot of folks who are listening, that is an experience that will resonate for many of them because as we all know, Many of us have been touched by suicide and many of us have been touched by, you know, self-harming behaviors, whether it's ourselves or people we love or people we work with. And so I just want to acknowledge you sharing that. Thanks. I, I feel it's my duty. What else can we do with an experience like that uh, except honor it? And I am not alone. Very often when I speak with clients, lawyer clients who come to me for coaching or consulting, they will often say that they live their lives in two lanes. One lane is the law and the law firm or the legal representation that they're providing. And the other is their lives, their families, where their vacations or their coffee breaks or their lunches, you know, they're frantically on the phone helping to figure out care or they're dealing with domestic violence or some type of threat or other trauma in the family or trying to stop those cycles, the cycle of trauma. And so about your question on why a book like this would help and needs to exist, I feel like there are two intractable problems in the legal profession and the system that really are not mysteries, but we, we delude ourselves into thinking they're mysteries. And one is access to justice and the other is lawyer wellness. So we often say, oh my goodness, I don't know what we're going to do. There are just so many cases that don't get adequate representation or even get any representation or even get to the point of anything being reported about them. And when we look at the nature of those cases, those are often situations that involve something complex, something traumatic, something overwhelming. 
And our system parses things down into nice, neat little emotionless facts. And so very often the the gaping wounds and dumpster fires of situations where people are really suffering and in pain are often the ones that get left out where there's no room, you know, even at uh, legal clinics, which are overwhelmed, right? We don't have a crisis response lane in our legal systems, in our, even in our schools and our training, right? We don't have a course where it says, what happens if you're working on a case or a case is so crisis uh, involved that you don't know the next step and we don't have a way to unpack that. So that's number one. And number two is, is lawyer wellness. You know, uh, in I have worked on the, you know, that Kim was talking about the street, right? The Wall Street. And, you know, I worked on the street and Wall Street and I worked on large M&A deals. And so very often in those situations, I would notice how often people were coming into my office to seek not legal advice, but counseling, basically some type of support because you are arguing all day. Also, very often you're dealing with clients and others where they are so overwhelmed, they don't know what to do. And so trauma is often a situation of overwhelm. So that's a very different situation than uh, domestic violence. However, some of the same issues and notes are at play. So when we sit back and we wonder, oh, I'm, I wonder why lawyers are so unwell and there's high rates of addiction and suicide and uh, mental health impact. This is not a mystery. We are in a profession where we are asked to argue all day, every day. We are asked to do more and more with less. We're asked to put aside who we are. We are asked to split ourselves and reserve our self-care or even any awareness of self for our vacations. So I really think that this type of book can address both of those mysteries. What I wanted maybe you to speak to and just comment on a little is those folks out there within our profession who push back against this piece about reflecting emotion and acknowledging emotion and stress. I've heard some people refer to that as soft skills. If people need counseling, then they should go to a therapist. That's not what we're here for. What would you say, Helgi, to some of those who are of that view? I would say that our duty as lawyers is to pursue the best interests of the client, period, right? And so that is not a win or lose assessment. The client has other interests, such as being able to operate and instruct their own counsel with agency. They have other issues that interface with their legal issues. So when we say, oh, you know, I'm just working in the best interest of the client, what really is that best interest? And so very often speaking with clients when they've come away from a particularly complex case or other involvement in the legal system, so often I hear clients say that two things. They say that had they known, they would not have, they would have avoided being involved in the legal system at all, number one. And number two, they often say that the legal system involvement was worse than what originally happened as the harm. And sometimes that harm is domestic violence or something else actually very painful. So I would say that, you know, listen to your client when they say, have their interests been served? If the client says they would rather not have done it or they were more harmed than helped, 
we have not then served their best interests. So this is not a soft skill at all. This is a critical competency. Actually, it is a critical competency. And there's been some research done about what are the competencies to be a a successful lawyer. Um, The law schools in... um, at Bolt and Hastings actually did a, a study a few years ago, and I may get some of the details wrong, but this is how I remember it. Um, they wanted to know how to admit law students, like sort of what uh, characteristics to look for and how to train them and, and, and so forth. And so they interviewed successful lawyers, and, you know, lawyers who by all the measures were successful and asked them what was the most important Uh, What are the most important skills? And uh, it turned out that everything we call soft skills are the important skills for being a lawyer. Now, you know, we think being analytical and being able to write and things like that are 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 the are the tools that we should focus on in law school. And that's what law school focuses on and how to be, you know sort of rational and distant and all of that. But the in the real world, a successful lawyer, and these are the rainmakers and the, you know, all of the things that we, you know, let we look on the outside and say, oh, well, that's a successful lawyer, that they are people who can communicate and who can listen, who and who can actually do what is best for the client um, using those soft skills. There's a book on soft skills that talks about the the difference in how we lawyers think we should be and how our clients think we should be that um, that really shows this gap and um, and the skills that um, are being valued um, as we are educated and um, and as we practice what form of hope or types of benefits might trauma informed practice provide for clients for lawyers for the community because I'm sure each of you have these ideas of how this book, is going to be an incredible benefit to those groups. As I think about this book, uh, what I'm really hoping for is that my students uh, will read it because um, I think about the path that uh, each of us has taken to get to this moment and it was a painful path, right? Um, So many moments we doubted our very sort of human tendencies to feel Um, with our clients. And as Kim is pointing out, all of the research is demonstrating to us that um, to be uh, effective at our jobs, to be effective in our lives, to be present to ourselves and to our families requires um, this feeling. Uh, So separating it in a box and putting it away until you can go on vacation, as Helgi says, um, creates all sorts of dysfunctions for us. I really, really hope that the next generation doesn't have to come to the point of absolute collapse before recognizing that there's another way um, and a far less traumatic way to practice. So from my end, um, the hope that this book presents is that there's no need to kind of deny the impact that some of these traumatic experiences um, uh, of our clients of ourselves working in the system undoubtedly will have on us and that there are ways of moving forward that don't require us to engage in self-harm. Maybe I'll go to you, Kim. What form of hope or types of benefits might this book have for clients, for lawyers, for the legal community? 
So not only are we going to talk about the problems, but we're going to bring the tools and the ideas and uh, and the stories. Um, I think one of the biggest pieces, we're going to let people know they're not alone. You know, the, the trauma it starts in law school or, and it, or maybe it starts before in trauma in our lives. And it, um, and it, you know, goes into law practice and then there's a systemic uh, embedding of the system itself being traumatizing uh, on so many different, different levels. And so as we look at that, we're going to look at, well, and what can we do? So we, you know, how do we change systems? How do we practice in a way that's more, that's healthier and, and more trauma informed and less traumatizing? How do we take care of ourselves and our clients? And uh, how can we change legal education? We're going to have sort of the, the big, the macro uh, suggestions. And then some of the things like get your sleep. There's some basic things that we know what to do and we are not encouraged to do them in this, in, in this culture this, that's so broken. Thanks, Kim. How about yourself, Helgi? What form of hope or types of benefits might this book provide for clients, lawyers, and the legal community generally? The hope and benefit is to provide an alternative to the hopeless option that lawyers and clients often talk about, which is mass system change. System change doesn't happen all at once, right? We can't necessarily create, I would love to though, create trauma-informed courts across the land or trauma-informed training in all law schools and bar associations and CPD. However, we can invest in the integrity and quality of our own practices. And someone I think who speaks about this very well is Brian Stevenson. He's the head of Equal Justice Initiative, the founder of that and author of Just Mercy. And he says that there's no meaningful justice or improvement in justice without becoming uncomfortable and getting proximity to clients. And so in our in this book, we talk about ways to deal with the discomfort of complex situations where there isn't access to justice readily or where quality of representation is something we need to look at or where legal outcomes could, if we didn't look at it through a trauma lens, go very much awry and we could be punishing people for trauma. With this approach of being trauma-informed in legal representation, we help people deal with those discomforts and therefore advance justice and also have tools to become more proximate to, meaning closer to and more understanding of, more having more information about without crossing boundaries their clients, the system, their own situation. That's the hope I see and benefit I see in this. And speaking with other lawyers in other jurisdictions, they do say that there are benefits that they see as well as clients, because if they're working with a client who feels, Marjorie was talking about trust and distance. If they're working with a client who feels some trust in them and in the system and where there are tools to bridge that distance then the client may not be as triggered and we therefore will not be as triggered through our mirror neurons ourselves. So that's the hope and benefit I see. As a co-author on this book, I see as an Indigenous woman and an Indigenous lawyer, I see all of the ways in which Indigenous people are subjected to racism and a lack of dignity in the courtroom afforded to them, and in some cases, very demoralizing treatment. And I truly believe 
that my purpose in becoming a lawyer was to help open minds and hearts of individuals who have a lot of influence, power, and authority over Indigenous and racialized people in courtrooms. There are a lot of people all over the world listening to this podcast, and we want to include your experiences in this book. We want to hear from you. And so let's start with what do we want from listeners? How could they lend their experiences, their voices, their ideas to this book? This book, I think, is for the people drawn to um, listening to your podcast, Marina, without question. It's... uh, for um, our law students and for our professionals out there. And so I think one of the ways that people uh, could participate is sharing their stories, right? Um, I know that uh, Helgi has really spearheaded this effort to um, both survey uh, um, our audience of professionals and gather their storytelling. But I think our stories are powerful and our stories are healing. And so part of the task is for us to be able to kind of share those stories with one another. I was really moved, Helgi, by your sharing of how you were notified of your mother's suicide. Um, I could only imagine. And the fact that they went to your workplace is a whole other level of pain. Uh, And one of the stories I think that sort of guided me to this transition to include a psychological understanding um, into my law practice was one of my best friends had a shockingly similar story um, about um, her father's death. And um, the law firm that we were working at, this big, powerful law firm, essentially said to her, you know, the way to deal with grief, um, it's to throw yourself into your work, just basically work harder, and that will change everything. those kinds of stories, when we share them with one another, change everything. Because I know it changed me and I thought, and I left that job shortly afterwards, right? Um, and so I think I would love to hear your listeners' um, stories, just as I would love to share mine uh, with them, because our cho- uh, our stories are transformative. I agree. Through stories comes healing, through comes transformation, comes insight, comes innovation. I want to add something about the stories because we're not going to print every story and and we're not going to print any story that people don't want to have printed. But for us, it's a learning opportunity uh, to see, you know, sort of what lawyers are dealing with. I mean, we have our own stories and we've heard stories from a lot of people, but sometimes I'm surprised at, for example, someone shared a story of a personal injury case and um, and how it impacted her when she was in a similar situation. She said that it was completely invisible to her until we started asking these questions about trauma and that she realized that it had permeated her life. And, uh, and now she, she has some power over that. And, um, you know, and I, and I can see it in my own life, I, I was involved in a domestic violence, uh, murder, suicide, and as, as the lawyer for the woman who was killed. And that day I fell down some stairs and it took me a while to figure out that I became afraid of stairs. Not, you know, like there was, there was not a direct connection, but every time I uh, came to a staircase, I, I, I went through that. And, you know, that that was just not normal, but it actually probably is normal. 
And, you know, and, and so as people share these stories, we get a broader view of, of the kinds of uh, things that lawyers are dealing with, and we can more adequately address those. And then we're also going to be asking for some of the people who are experts on trauma to contribute uh, some of the factual information. So the, the layout of the book is that we're going to include a story in each section and maybe several stories. And then we're going to have um, some, you know, some information because we lawyers, we really like information. And then we're going to offer solutions. And so if people want to share what they did about that, you know, you know, like they they realized they were traumatized and then they did X, Y, Z, then, you know, we're interested in those too. Like, you know, tell us uh, what are your coping mechanisms? I was a single parent with three kids when I went through law school. And prior to that, I started to have horrible panic attacks. I passed out one time in a mall. And as a result of that experience, I started to avoid malls. And then I started to avoid the public. And then I started to, I became agoraphobic. I didn't leave my apartment for six months. I became highly suicidal. And then when I went into law school, still like by the skin of my teeth, every day I was in survival mode. I was just trying to get through the day without passing out in class. And I was having all of these panic attacks. And so that is really what compelled me to get into criminal law, because I knew I had to confront my fears. I had to learn how to stand on my feet, allow everyone to look at me and speak loudly and clearly and be able to uh, defend my position even though my heart was racing like 200 beats per minute, I thought I was going to die. And for the first several times I was in court, I kept a bucket nearby in case I started puking in court. Like that was how anxiety ridden I was. Anyway, I share this experience for those of you who are listening, who've had similar experiences, you're not alone. And I think that this book is going to demonstrate that. And I'm so glad that we're inviting people to contribute. Helgi, who would we like to hear from? Lawyers have this funny thing where they believe other lawyers more than non-lawyers. I don't even like the word non-lawyer, but apparently we use that term in the legal profession. And so with the survey, which I've posted at traumainformedlaw.org under surveys, what we would like to hear is stories and also survey responses. If people don't feel comfortable sharing a story, they can respond to the questions in the survey of how do they see trauma impacting clients colleagues, themselves, and the legal community at large. And so because of this lawyer wanting to hear from other lawyers thing, we do want it to be from judges, legal educators, people involved in the system as opposed to clients, but you can also tell a story about a client. And so the question I hold in the survey is very often, not so different from me, lawyers have someone or a case or a client or something they want to honor something that they that changed them, changed their perception of their own profession, something where their justice did not occur or did not unfold as it should have and they wished it did, or seeing a colleague really terribly affected by wellness concerns, wanting to have done something for that colleague, but being somehow unable to. And so those are stories you can share and you can honor. So that's the question I would ask. If you had a story or an experience you would want to honor and support towards improving the legal system, what would that story be? Well, the deadline for our final draft is March 15th, which is right around the corner. <laughs> and uh, we have a lot of work to do between now and then. And then um, it'll take another uh, two or three months probably 
for the uh, for the rest of the process, the actual proofreading and cover design. And, you know, there are a lot of things that happen after we get in that first draft. We're hoping that, uh, you know, pre-orders can start maybe in May. Fantastic. In closing our interview today, is there anything else that folks would like to add and share with our listeners? I'd love to share something, Myrna, to acknowledge that we are all living through traumatic times right now. Uh, Certainly in my lifetime, I have not had the experience of living and working in the midst of a pandemic and turmoil in the sort of American electoral process. And, And we're also having to show up for our clients, for our students and for everyone else. And so I wanted to be sure to kind of encourage others, um, as I encourage myself, to acknowledge this moment. Um, And as we talk about trauma, to pause in every instance and and recognize that we cannot behave as if this was an ordinary moment. And maybe this is the moment we start to implement some of the things we know are necessary um, for our own sanity and self-healing including things like self-care and also thinking about how we show up in the profession uh, for our clients and for one another. Let's acknowledge the reality in which we live, which is the definition of a traumatic time period. And let's behave accordingly. Thank you for that, Marjorie. Kim? We haven't said that the book is actually going to be published by the American Bar Association Law Practice Management Section. So I want to acknowledge that and that um, uh, I really appreciate the law practice management section being the ones to publish this because it really recognizes the the extent of the issue that it's not something that they're going to put over in um, you know sort of a, a an area that's not um, not given much importance or something like that that um, this is about the the practice of law. And, um, and so I just want to mention that as well. I wanted to acknowledge that just because I'm helping to write this book, it doesn't mean that I personally am a founder of this concept or, you know, one of the key people in my country or around the world calling for this. Uh, when I speak with lawyers, some of them have never heard of trauma-informed practices or the word trauma-informed or aren't sure what trauma is. And so Uh, One place to read more about it is to read the calls to action written by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, or if you're not in Canada, looking to who else is calling for this. And I think that's very important because it's not just for us as lawyers. It's not just for uh, law schools or individual clients. There are other very important calls for this. So it's part of an important issue that is coming up in the fabric of our society outside the legal system as well, you know, as part of the legal system, but in in general. Thanks, Helgi, for citing the TRC's calls to action. You're right. It's it's important, even for people who are not in Canada, to take a look at that document. Just in closing, if there's any one experience or person or whatever it may be that you want to thank that has brought you to the awareness that you have uh, developed to this point in your practice, let's do a little bit of a round as we close. Let's start with Helgi, please. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd like to thank Linda Redgrave, who is one of the witnesses. Uh, she was witness number one in the Gameshi trial. And so she 
agreed to advocate together with me. She agreed to let me assist with advocating for judicial training, federal judicial training on trauma-informed lawyering. And I would like to thank the Native Women's Association of Canada. Uh, They looked at a paper I wrote, their legal staff about trauma-informed lawyering for legal community. And then I'd also like to thank Tess Sheldon. She's a law professor working in mental health law. And also my family members who allowed them their stories to be told and to shared with me the impact. Well, the first person uh, comes to mind has actually passed, but I always want to acknowledge him. Um, his uh, name was Forrest Baird. And uh, early in my career, I decided I was not going to be a lawyer. I did not grow up always wanting to be a lawyer like the others here. I, uh, I, I went to law school because I, um, I had a very... Um, I had a family that got in a lot of legal trouble. <laughs> and uh, and so I went because I wanted to help them. And uh, when I was in law school, I came across a lot of the issues that we've talked about here and some others and decided not to be not to be a lawyer. And a few years after I graduated, I was in a, uh, a course and this man stood up and he started talking about how he practiced law in a way that granted dignity to everyone. And, it, and, and I remember Marjorie said something about dignity that really um, caused me to reflect on him because that was the first time I'd ever heard dignity and law spoken about together. He was a divorce lawyer who thought that uh, his client and uh, the ex should be friends at the end. And so he trained himself in a lot of different modalities and became a person who granted dignity to everyone and was a peacemaker. And so Forrest Baird um, is the reason I became a lawyer um, instead of doing other things with my life. And then since then, I've been I've been gathering lawyers who sort of share the same uh, uh mindset. And so uh, my other thanks go to the hundreds of integrative lawyers who are being really courageous and not following the uh, sort of the dominant culture and are beginning to create a new culture. For me, first and foremost, I want to thank my law students because I remember must have been 15 years ago, um, my first semester of teaching, um, I had a student walk into um, my office and um, she was clearly overwhelmed and she was crying and she, um, it was immediately after um, the exams and I had no tools uh, to deal with that. And I can remember saying to her, let's talk about contracts law. Because that's where I was at that stage of development in my life. Um, and it was enough of a wake-up call for me to go and do some work so that I could um, be in relationship with strong emotion without having to hide um, behind the so-called objectivity of the law. And that was one of the first um impetus, right, to to move me in a different direction. Because when she left that office, I felt so terrible about myself that I knew that I couldn't continue to behave um, in that same way. And then I actually want to thank my teachers outside of the law who really trained me in the capacity to 
feel and to hold strong emotion um, and in the uh, modalities that allow us to process and integrate them. Um, we are terrified, right? Um, a lot of us in the legal profession, because we think that we will be overwhelmed by these emotions and that the overwhelm will be forever when in fact it's the denial and the suppression that lead to greater harm. And so I'm really grateful for, um, I, I've been trained in a number of um, healing modalities at this stage, including um, modalities of healing collective wounds, not just our individual psychology. Um, and for that, I'm really grateful for my teachers who've done the work and who've passed it on. And then finally, I'm so grateful for you, Mirna, and for this group, um, because as I've been sort of walking through this really traumatic time, the ability to reach out to all of you and to have you help me hold um, uh, what feels overwhelming uh, has really helped me stay in this moment um, and not run away. So thank you, all of you. Thank you all for sharing. And I think Kim and Helgi want <laughs> to say more. Uh, let's start with Helgi. I really want to acknowledge you, Myrna, and also uh, Marjorie and Kim. There wouldn't be a conversation around this without you. And especially, Myrna, I remember when we first met and we kind of connected over the internet first. And until connecting with you, I felt very much alone in speaking about this topic, at least where I live. And every time I speak with you or work with you, I learn more. And I also get more interested in this topic and see the promise of it and see what can come from it because it's, you have such wonderful insights to bring and a very compelling voice authentically sharing. So it's, it sounds odd to be excited to work in an, uh, on a topic like trauma, but it really is, it's the, such intelligence of humanity that comes through this topic. So I wanted to say that. Thank you, Helgi. Kim? Well, I want to acknowledge everyone and echo everything that uh, was said about this team. And, uh, and sometimes when you're writing a book, things get right in your face that you're writing about. And to have been writing this book about trauma at this time in our history with everything going on in some ways sounds like insane. And in other ways, it's the perfect time because we have, we're, we're looking at, you know, for ourselves, how do we, how do we actually live what we're writing about and how, how do we support each other? And so um, I can't imagine a more perfect time or a more perfect group of women to uh, be working with at this particular time. So thank you all. Well, of course, you know, I started off thanking all of you naturally. I'm just, I can't tell you just how blown away I am by the openings that this podcast has created in my life. And for so many folks who've entrusted me with their stories and who've said yes, when I've invited them in for an interview. So to those folks who say yes, when I give them a call, thank you. And to those of you listening and subscribing and sharing this podcast with your loved ones, with your colleagues, with your students, and including it as required listening in your courses. Thank you. I'm so incredibly 
profoundly grateful for all of you uh, being so engaged and interested in this subject. I have to also say that I am so incredibly thankful to survivors. They are really the people who taught me about trauma within the context of the practice of law and more specifically Indigenous survivors. So my hands go up to them and I have to add that I am thankful to my mom who and subjected me to profound trauma. If not for that experience, I would not have learned about my own personal ability to overcome all of that which she put before me in my life. And so, you know, she's passed on now, but my hands go up to her all the time because if not for putting me through all of those tests and all of those trials, I would not be the person I am today having the conversations that I'm having. And so... I'm grateful to her. I'm also equally grateful to my mentors, Dan Shapiro, who was my boss in the independent assessment process where I adjudicated hundreds of Indian residential school claims and sat with people's trauma. He was an incredible mentor and still is. And Catherine Knox and Earl Kalenith, who was a provincial court judge in Saskatchewan, all of these folks really in their own ways allowed me to feel like I, I have a place in this profession. I belong here. In fact, it was Dan who he and I developed this mantra for me, I belong here. So every time I'd have to go into a room and I was feeling inadequate and feeling like I didn't belong or really overcome with imposter syndrome, I would just say those three words, I belong here. And so to those folks, I'm incredibly grateful. Finally, my kids and my grandkids and my best friend, Shane, if not for all of the love that they have given me, I would not have learned as much as I have now about healing and about possibility. I think that is the flip side of trauma is healing and possibility. They teach me that every day. And when I forget, they remind me. And so I'm so incredibly grateful to them. And I'm incredibly grateful about all the possibility that 2021 is going to bring and that this book is going to bring, not just for us as this wonderful collective, but for this entire world. We need healing now. I'm really excited about the possibilities that we will create by gifting this book to the world. I truly believe it's a gift and we're all just a vessel to deliver it. So thank you all very much. All right, folks, that was today's show. Pretty exciting, right? What's to come? I think amazing things are coming for 2021 for us and and possibilities. We all need to live in a little possibility. You know what I'm saying? So if you have any feedback about today's episode, ideas, thoughts, whatever it might be, you know, you can always find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram, the trauma-informed lawyer and you can also find me now on twitter because the trauma-informed lawyer podcast has its own handle at the t-i-l podcast so drop me a line let me know what you thought and yeah until next time take care everyone